Hi, welcome back to Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. On today's episode, my brother Spencer Cropper is going to be joining me once again, and we are going to be doing a deep dive into Terrapin Station by the Grateful Dead. I've been thinking of introducing deep dives into individual songs for some time now, and Terrapin Station is one of the songs that I knew would be a strong candidate to put under such a microscope. With today, that is Friday, February 26th, if you're listening to this, uh, I'm recording it on Thursday, but with today, the 26th, being the 44th anniversary of Terrapin's debut, at the Swing Auditorium in San Bernardino, California, February 26, 1977. This seemed like the perfect time for our first deep dive. So Terrapin, the title track of the album of the same name, which was released July 27, 1977, Terrapin Station is listed on the album as Terrapin Station Medley because it has the Lady with a Fan section then the Terrapin Station section, and then there's also a section called At a Siding on the album. I'm going to leave that section out today as the band left it out in all of the live performances as far as I know, and I think it sounds better without it, as it would seem uh, the band thought as well since they never played that part live. And I actually think the song sounded much better live than on the studio version as many of their songs did so spence and i are using the may 17th 1977 version from tuscaloosa alabama as our reference version today i think it's the best version of terrapin and i cannot thank david dodd enough for his the annotated terrapin station which was very useful in uh, compiling this episode he wrote a series of these annotated uh, whatever dead song you want to plug in there for uh, University of California, Santa Clara, where he is a professor, or at least uh, was when he did this in the late 90s. And uh, his annotations for each Grateful Dead song are a fantastic resource, and I encourage you to uh, visit that for Terrapin as you listen to this as kind of a a supplemental uh, reading to complement the insights that Spence and I are going to try to give you today. And without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to the conversation with Spencer, and he and I are just going to go through the whole analysis together as opposed to me giving you some of it and then rehashing the same material with him. All right, so welcome back to the show, my brother, Spencer Cropper, who's going to help me uh, with the first deep dive into a single song, that being Terrapin Station by The Grateful Dead. Welcome back, Spence. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, of course. I mean, I suppose uh, two weeks ago when you were on talking about the February 13th, 1970 Dark Star, that was a, a single song deep dive, but that was more focused on the nuances of that live version. This is more of a a deep analysis of the song itself. Which I think is so great. Like I think sitting down with a song like this, you can really get into it and like realize that those lyrics were written with probably more purpose than you've ever heard just listening to them. Like the chords probably have more going on than you ever expected. So I I think we picked a great song to do it. Um, 
you know, this is about as detailed as it gets. Yeah, I think so. And uh, the reason I, I mean, this happened to be a week where there wasn't any stuff to talk about related to tour anniversaries or album release anniversaries. So it was a bit of a free date. And I thought, oh, well, that's a good week to, to do the first deep dive. And I knew Terrapin was one that I wanted to do at some point. Uh, and to, well, tomorrow for us recording, but uh, we'll release it on Friday the 26th. Uh, so if you're listening to this, Terrapin Station debuted 44 years ago today in San Bernardino, California. They actually opened with it and like, what, five months before the album came out. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, can you imagine easing into a show with this one? Yeah, and it's one of like very few times that they played it in the first set, even though it became a live mainstay. Like it really is a second set kind of song. Mm. Uh, although Dead and Company opened with it the second show at Wrigley in 2019. That's cool. Yeah. Okay, so we'll start with giving you all just the. Uh, the credits for the song Robert Hunter wrote the words, Jerry Garcia wrote the music, uh, copyright Ice Nine Publishing, and officially released on the album Terrapin Station July 27th, 1977. And then as far as background about the song, Robert Hunter wrote the lyrics in a single sitting during a thunderstorm. And I think it, he really did a good job of capturing that kind of vibe. Oh, well, I guess that would be more on, on Jerry's music, but you can definitely get that sense when you listen to it. It almost, it almost reminds me of like riders on the storm in that sense. Yeah. It, that it really kind of puts you in that thunderstorm kind of vibe. And in a different way, like that one eases in with the keyboard, but this it's really that lick. Da, 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 da. Um, and the way that it, it slowly goes in and then of course it's, it's like a train picking up speed by the end it's like whoa this is not where we started but you know all staying true to that kind of storm vibe for sure and that same day a melody line came to jerry as he was driving across a bridge while he was just out for a drive and he turned around and drove home so that he could write it down before he lost it and the two of them met up the next day to show each other what they had come up with during the storm. And it was the words and music to this. They just fit perfectly. Wait, I mean, that's so awesome. And think like now you get an idea and you just you turn on voice notes and hum it and keep going about your day. Back then it was like, oh, I don't have a pen or paper. I literally have to drive home before I forget this. Uh, you could just picture Jerry in one of those big old 70s cars, like singing it to himself frantically. Yeah, he's like, da, 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 da. Uh, and Hunter actually wrote far more lyrics than Jerry ended up singing, uh, much to Hunter's chagrin. But I think that's one of the interesting uh, nuances of their relationship as songwriting partners that Jerry sort of reserved the final editor's touch as far as what made it into the finished version, even though he mostly like totally trusted Hunter to write what he wanted. Well, and um, I wanted to ask you, cause when, when we've written together, like, right, typically I'm the one that writes far less lyrics uh, than you. And I'm always the one that would be, proposing yeah let's cut that we don't need that verse we don't need that verse 
uh, does this remind you of that kind of thing where it's like, ah, oh, no, no, the story's so great. You need all the lyrics. And I'm like, no, we can just chop three verses. Don't worry. Well, yeah, it kind of does because he, uh, I mean, it was clearly a song that was very near and dear to Hunter's heart. Uh, in his lyrical anthology box of rain he writes more about it than any other dead song uh and i've never actually read the full uh lyrics it's out there somewhere i should i should check that out but apparently it explores like lots of other like people and places in the dead universe yeah so it's almost like he wrote it like a uh i don't know like a grateful dead uh like bible or encyclopedia of sorts it's almost like uh the way he had it is like what the silmarillion is to the lord of the rings universe and jerry sort of pared it down to like no let's just keep it the lord of the rings right right well and it's like that too right like with jerry being in the band that it's like he needs that final say because you know even though Hunter wrote more lyrics and he was like, no, you're losing the resolution to the song. To me, not knowing that listening, it still sounds to me like there's resolution and it makes sense. Um, and, and right. I mean, it's Jerry's con. I, I, I don't think he made a mistake in, in cutting because I think as it stands, it's pretty brilliant. And with how it moves from the first section to the next and it kind of ends, it's mm, like, it makes me want more. And if there was maybe a more final resolution, then maybe I'd be like, ah, oh, that's good, but I'm not going to go back and listen to it again, like right away. Right. Well, and first of all, that little bit of element of mystery and leaving some up for your interpretation of like, how did this story end uh, makes it a bit more universal and is part of its intrigue as opposed to like explaining every last detail, which, you know, is cool cool as far as a a flex as a lyricist but um it will and also it's already a an 11 to 13 minute song most times that they played it and presumably if they had included all of his lyrics it would be like over 20 at least which is one thing in like a jam style thing like a dark star but to have a song that long with complicated lyrics the whole way it, it reaches a point where even the most devoted listeners are going to have trouble like staying with that level of detailed listening trying to decipher it all well and before it even gets to the listeners like i can tell you right now as a singer it's, i mean it's one thing to learn four verses well especially too because if they're your lyrics they're a bit easier to remember but like in this scenario like jerry is remembering hunter's lyrics right mm -hmm. and it's like 10 verses is like crazy trying to learn that but you're like 20 minutes of vocals and and lyrics and uh, like with the way that hunter writes it never is the same way like mm -hmm. you know there's there's all of these idiosyncrasies going on like even if a verse sounds kind of similar, it like, it doesn't use any of the same words. Right. And or like, like uncle point, John's band, how like the refrain changes each time. Exactly. Right. So like it, it's, it's just, it seems impossible to be learning that many lyrics. And, and that also too could be part of the reason that Jerry cut 
Some, I mean, I'd like is something I would do. I'd be like, I can't learn all of this. I can't retain it. So like, we're going to cut a couple. Yeah, it could very well be. Cause I mean, I've always been impressed at how, uh, how consistently he remembered all the words to this one. Cause it is pretty long. Yeah. And, and there are shorter ones that he screwed up with more frequency, like China cat sunflower. He would often like sing the second and third verse in reverse order and stuff like that. Um, so we'll give you all some details of the music now, and then we will, uh, do some analysis of that and then get into the lyrical analysis. So I mentioned this in the intro, but just, uh, I'll mention it again on the studio version. It, there's the lady with the fan section, the Terrapin station section, and then a third section called at a siding, which they never played in the live versions. And we're not going to talk about it today. Cause I always think of it just as lady with a fan and Terrapin station. And it seems to me that they did too. When you consider they never played that other section live. Uh, and also we're using as our reference version today, the May 17th, 1977 version from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, uh, which I find to be the best live version. Anyhow, so with that disclaimer out of the way, the lady with a fan section is in the key of C and the Terrapin station section is in the key of E. But Spence, you were saying you suspect there's some more going on there in the transition between the two. Uh, yeah, like, you know, there's like direct modulations and, and indirect. Um, and so direct is like, you're not prepared for it. You're, you're in the one key and then boom, all of a sudden you're on the first chord of the next key. And that can be good if a song is calling for like a huge breath of fresh air, but it only works with certain key changes. Um, and I would say C major to E major is a tough one to pull off. Um, and the dead to, to me, it sounds like they're, they're slowly switching. Um, and like C you've got zero, zero sharps, zero flats and E you've got three sharps. Um, and to me, it sounds like they're switching, uh, like there may be a key in between that they're helping almost as like a middleman. Okay. Um, but the way they do it, it just seems so smooth. Like if I wasn't reading the chords, I would know there's something going on, but I wouldn't think it's quite as drastic as, as this key change. Yeah. Well, speaking of chords, you want to go through the chords next and then I'll do the time signatures. Yeah, for sure. Um, so like the lady with the fan section, um, basically it's using the chords, uh, F G D minor and C. Um, that's like the main part. So, um, it goes G D minor, D minor, C G to the F. Okay. And then it, it has, uh, it depends what the lyrics are singing, but sometimes on that F it hangs a bit. And it, as we talked about, it does the, Da, 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 back into it and then other times it's just kind of a bit like da, 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 right back into it and so like that 
as you're playing along, it's like tough to get into it. But once you stop trying to count it and you just start listening and go, what do I think they're going to do this time? You can start to pick up like, Oh, here it comes. Here's that little riff. Um, and well, and I think that leads us right into the the timing part. Um, so like with that, that riff in between, it's got kind of like a, a drag to it. It's got an extra beat or two. So uh, what, uh, what's the time timing of the lady with the fan section? So the, uh, this, uh, it's not that it repeats this cycle continuously throughout, but these are the ones that they, they move through over the course of that section. You got four, four, six, eight, three, eight, two, four, and four, four. So I think it's, I think the three, eight is maybe that riff because Right. If like the way I'm hearing it, it's like one, two, three, four. But when it gets to that, that little riff, it's a extra beat is like a triplet. So it's like, da, 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 one, two, three, one, two. So it's cool how they're like, you know, they're just throwing in a bar of three, eight there to uh, facilitate the riff that they have. Right. And if you don't write that guitar riff, you might never even think to do that with the beat. Yeah, and and two four is another interesting one to more used as like a a transitional bar when you have a little tag at the end or a shorter little cut to something else. Yeah, or almost like a false ending kind of thing where it's like you think the section's over, but then they go da da boom, and it's back in. Right, because if you think of like playing in the band, which is in ten four the whole way when you count it or like the feel of it as you're playing it, it's like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two. And yeah, that little one with any bar that's that short, it's like, right. Like in a bar of four, maybe you're going to accent the first and the third beat or the second and the fourth Mm -hmm. in a bar of two, you don't really have room to play. Yeah. They're both just like, bam, bam. Yeah, bam, bam, and leading right back in. For sure. Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) What was that? I had an alarm going off. (laughs) okay so you want to go over the uh chords of the turpin station section sure let's do it so that one's moved into e major um now i've noticed when i look at the chords that the dead play they're very um liberal with with what they do so like once we're into E major, if, if we were just only going to stick with those chords, uh, we would only be playing E, A, C sharp minor. That's it. Of the chords that are actually contained in it, there's only three of them that really truly belong there. And then you've got an A7, which you could fit into E major, but typically it's like you're going somewhere else. That one pulls you more to to D Mm -hmm. Uh, we've got a G major seven, which is like just totally out of left field in E major. 
we have a D, a D major seven, which like <laughs> that one is a bit easier to reason. It's basically the same. It's a flat seven chord uh, in terms of the scale and like the earlier section. Um, I'm trying to see. They use the flat seven a lot. They don't use it in the, the lady with a fan, but uh, there's like half the songs we looked at off American beauty use it. So that one's a bit more of a, a pattern that I can see, but like we talked about the D sharp minor, uh, minor seven flat five chord, mm-hmm. which is a chord that it kind of slides to where you're going. It's uh, it creates a lot of tension and it doesn't give you a feeling of like finality so it'll slide back into the chord you're going to, whether that's E or, you know, you could use it either way. You can move to E to D. Um, so it's a chord that works great for that. And it's, it really works well for um, like chromatic movement in a song. Okay. And we were talking about how it's in, you know, great songs like God Only Knows. Um, the Beatles use it quite a bit. Uh, but hearing it in this context, it's, um, it's leading up to the part in Terrapin station. Like, let me look at the lyrics really quickly. Um, so it's like the faced with mysteries, dark and vast statements just seem vain at last. So it's at the end of those lines. Mm-hmm. And then they bring it back in on the crickets and, uh, cicadas sing, mm-hmm a rare and different tune. It's right between those. Um, and it just has this kind of feeling of like extending what's going on. So whereas if you put a different chord in between it, say you put like just B major there, mm-hmm. it might sound like one verse than the next, but because you're putting that and it's kind of sliding, it sounds like one joined verse. Oh, okay. Neat. Yeah. Cool. Uh, and then the timing for the terrapin section you got four four two four 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 three four 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 two four 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 three four so again right like they're just playing around with all kinds of stuff well and i think that like learning this song to me completely would be um quite a task i mean just learning the lyrics alone we talked about earlier would be uh, very difficult to do, but then like trying to learn not only the chords, but you're going, Oh, on this chord, they drop a beat here mm-hmm. because the line goes da da da, And we just don't need the extra beat or here we're adding a beat and we're kind of stuck between two chords and the riff does weird stuff. So like from the outside looking in at this, it's, it's remarkable that the band is so together and right. They're playing with two drummers with all this weird timing. And if you're listening to it and thinking, Oh, maybe I could do that. It's like, that's going to be a tough, a tough one, right? Like it's going to take a ton of practice to get that down. For sure. I mean, I play uh, dazed and confused the way that Zeppelin would do it live in like 73, 75 quite a bit. And it has like a lot of structural changes, but with each one, you stay on that, kind of section or that you stay with that feel for an extended period of time and there's more liberties with how you transition from one part to the next and everything but in a song like this where there's important lyrics 
accompanying you the whole way you really don't like they obviously they improvised to an extent on it but it was much more of a through composed kind of deal than ones like dark star and the other one where they were totally free to to mess around the whole way and yeah little nuances like that are much uh harder to master and remember while you're on stage as you and i both know then a big change like oh okay the violin bow section ends here and then we play the fast solo part for a while right like there's not nearly as much wiggle room as you'd find in some other songs mm-hmm. so as far as uh, some general observations about the musical side of things i think it sounds very enchanting right from the start simultaneously draws you in and whisks you away much in the same way that dark star does only more subtly without that signature opening riff that dark star has the this one just kind of slowly rolls in which uh it sounds exactly like a thunderstorm rolling in and the which were the conditions uh under which it was written the beginning sounds like the rain rolling in i always picture myself either driving in the rain or sitting on a big porch somewhere in the south like you see in like a nicholas sparks movie you know rocking gently on my porch string with a glass of bourbon or something while the willow trees sway in the breeze and then the storm starts to intensify as the lady with the sand lady with a fan section progresses and then the inspiration cry that commences the terrapin station section could be like the first flash of lightning still off in the distance a bit and then by the time you get to the whistle is screaming terrapin it's like you're right in the eye of the storm and then that carries on into the outro and in my opinion no song benefited more from the two drummer lineup than terrapin they're uh, cascading interlocking fills on the outro perfectly mimic the crackling thunder all around and for a song with so many changes of tempo and structure and the like it's very smooth like it's easy as we said for all of the complexity to float right by you if you're just listening casually for pleasure well and going back to the um the the hunter quote where like he felt that they they cut out the the natural resolution to his lyrics mm. um with the the thunderstorm um feel that this is giving you and it's ramping up into the eye of the storm with the outro with with those drums going and kind of mimicking thunder you don't really feel like you get to leave the storm and i, I think that's part of the beauty of it is that if you leave it and by the end you're like we've gone on this full journey it's like it's almost like listening to an album at that point where it's, you know, start, finish. We had the whole plot in between and, you know, it's good. I get it. Whereas this, it's kind of like, where are we being left here? Like, do I need to go back and see what I've missed? Yeah. And a lot of times in the live versions, they would transition into something else because the outro lends itself to that. Oftentimes it would, uh, just slowly devolve into a drum solo and then they would go into something different coming out of the drums so by the time they would you know come up for air next you've 
traveled a long way from the start of the journey at the beginning of Terrapin. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's cool that they use this as like one of those jumping off numbers into others. Um, because right, like if, if you're going to cut the resolution, then it's giving you the perfect opportunity to join it with something else and make it part of a bigger story and a bigger uh, flow. Right. Because if this had a final resolution, you're not going to want to progress it into a drum solo and then hop into Warfrat out of it. Right. Like you're, mm-hmm. you're going to want to stop it and, you know, do the whole clapping bit and then start the next one. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I love uh, the bubbly feel of Phil's bass line and the, uh, the second guitar part, not the, the opening strumming, but the, yeah well it's it's interesting like when i was looking at them jerry's part is is the the strumming mm-hmm. and on its own it doesn't sound that cool but once you put the riff over it it really is providing like such a nice um backbone for that riff um and well and there's riffs in the in the verses between the lines it's just a, a really nice lick that keeps it together and keeps it moving, keeps the momentum up. Um, now, I don't know if it's Bob or Jerry playing those in the verse, but I think it might be Bob because he's the one playing the the riff at the start. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, you'll hear Keith Richards talk a lot about the ancient art of guitar weaving, and why that's one of the reasons he likes uh, Ron's ron wood so much as his counterfoil in the stones because they really weave together and he didn't like the degree of separation that was there when it was he and mick taylor i mean he said it was the natural choice for me to focus more on riffing because he's just that good of a soloist but he if he has his druthers likes when the two are really interlocked like that and you can't really tell who's lead in rhythm and sometimes in the dead it was like Bob doing interesting chords while Jerry's noodling away, but this is one where they're really weaving. Well, and I think it's so cool because like Bob is so good at playing chords and playing rhythm that like whether he's capable of playing compelling lead guitar or not, it doesn't really matter. And he's a good singer. Um, but that I think a lot of people think of, oh, Jerry as this wizard and Bob as just, you know, he plays some chords under him and he's great at that, but he's, he's not Jerry, but uh, like, you know, just listening to it, I wouldn't be able to tell that it's not Jerry, even his tone. It sounds like he's messed around with it to sound a bit more like Jerry playing the lead part. So I think it's cool, right. With that weaving and right. You think about songs that are like, like I feel fine by the Beatles where like that you have no idea who's the lead guitarist in that because they're both kind of playing a lead type riff and the way that they blend, you just don't really know. You just know it's two guitarists playing. And I'm hearing that all the time with the dead where you can't tell who's doing what one, especially with Phil where he'll join along for a line with them. Mm -hmm. It definitely blurs the lines and you you go, I'm not listening to Jerry and I'm not listening to Bob. I'm just listening to the dead and they sound so tight together in this one. Yeah. And I wonder if it was a deliberate choice 
in this case where they sort of looked at the lyrics and thought, wow, this story is so good. We just need to be really in sync and focused on doing the story justice. Like this isn't like there's plenty of stuff in the set that gives opportunities for showboating or being really adventurous and like, okay, I get a solo here and like, I'm going to try to do something cool, but this is one to just like focus on the chemistry and allowing the lyrics to do their thing. Yeah. Speaking of which, I guess we can transition into the lyrical analysis now. Uh, I think I'll read them through all the way just so you all can get the the gist of it and then we'll uh, put it under the microscope uh, stanza by stanza. So, let my inspiration flow in token lines suggesting rhythm that will not forsake me till my tale is told and done. While the fire lights aglow, strange shadows in the flames will grow till things we've never seen will seem familiar. Shadows of a sailor forming, winds both foul and fair all swarm. Down in Carlisle he loved a lady many years ago. Here beside him stands a man, a soldier by the looks of him, who came through many fights, but lost at love. While the storyteller speaks, a door within the fire creaks, suddenly flies open, and a girl is standing there, eyes alight with glowing hair, all that fancy paints as fair. She takes her fan and throws it in the lion's den. Which of you to gain me tell will risk uncertain pains of hell. I will not forgive you if you will not take the chance. The sailor gave at least a try, the soldier being much too wise. Strategy was his strength and not disaster. The sailor coming out again, the lady fairly leapt at him. That's how it stands today. You decide if he was wise. The storyteller makes no choice. Soon you will not hear his voice. His job is to shed light and not to master. Since the end is never told, we pay the teller off in gold in hopes he will come back, but he cannot be bought or sold. And now into the Terrapin section. Inspiration, move me brightly. Light the song with sense and color. Hold away despair. More than this, I will not ask. Faced with mysteries dark and vast, statements just seem vain at last. Some rise, some fall, some climb to get to Terrapin. Counting stars by candlelight, all are dim but one is bright. The spiral light of Venus, rising first and shining best from the northwest corner of a brand new crescent moon. Crickets and cicadas sing a rare and different tune. Terrapin Station, in the shadow of the moon, Terrapin Station, and I know we'll be there soon. Terrapin, I can't figure out. Terrapin, if it's an end or the beginning. Terrapin, but the train's got its brakes on and the whistle is screaming. Terrapin. So, lots to uncover here. Let's start at the top. Let my inspiration flow in token lines suggesting rhythm that will not forsake me till my tale is told and done. I always picture sitting around a campfire with a wise elder who's 
persuaded by the youngsters to tell some epic tale from their youth and it's an important tale so they're asking god or the universe or whatever works for you to help them do the tale justice with their recounting of it yeah it's like it's almost like they're they're they, they want to hear a, a a war story or a love story they, they want to hear something that's captivating and it's it's like easing you in with the music here where it's you know it's like let my inspiration flow that alone to me is just you know hear this tale you know listen to it um see what it has to offer to you right and it's it just adds to the storytelling right like the lyrics there's so many to dissect um and and it's really such a great device that like the first verse is it's not really saying anything other than we're about to tell you a story but the way it's said is, is so so elegantly done Mm -hmm. And a good deal of the song, especially once we get to the Terrapin section, deals with inspiration itself. Right. So then second stanza, while the fire lights aglow, strange shadows in the flames will grow till things we've never seen will seem familiar. This is perhaps my favorite stanza in any dead song. I just think it's such terrific imagery. You can picture it being an enchanted fire of sorts and the teller is inviting the listeners to gaze into it. And before long, they'll be able to see the story unfold within the flames as he's telling them kind of like that little bird bath that Frodo looks into when they're in the woods of Lothlorien and fellowship of the ring. Yeah. It's, it's almost like as he tells it, the, the fire actually shows the story and it's like a picture within it. Mm-hmm. Which I think is such a great, I'm like, I'd love to see a video of the song with that. And, and you see the fire growing and, and you're seeing the story right in the heart of it. Mm-hmm. And it's also a cool thought that the characters and events in the story will soon seem familiar to the listeners. Because uh, indeed they have become uh, familiar to we deadheads from hearing the song so often. Well, and it almost, the way that they speak of the characters, it reminds me a lot of, of Dylan, mm. a sailor. It's like a joker, right? Yeah. And a soldier, you know, not saying that soldiers are clowns, but in terms of Dylan, the right. so, is, soldier is the clown. So you've got a sailor and a soldier, you've got the joker and the clown and right. Like you don't need to know their name. You just, that's what we're calling them for us. He's just the sailor. Right. And, and keeping it simple in that way, allowing, right. Like rather than trying to explain, this is the sailor it's through actions showing this is the difference between the sailor and the soldier. And, and you know, who is going to win this, this lady. Mm-hmm. And it also reminds me of the second half of the opening stanza in Kashmir sit with elders of a gentle race. This world is seldom seen who talk of days for which they sit and wait when all will be revealed. Yeah. Like similar. Um, well, the choice of words, right. One, it goes back to with the elders um, and how that's what it was reminding you of in the first stanza. Uh, the world has seldom seen um, sitting and waiting for these days, right? Like this story feels like something where it's people have been sitting and waiting to, to hear it. Maybe this happened, you know, 50 years ago and nobody's heard of it since. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then when all will be revealed, you know, this is the, 
the showing of, of the story and, and saying, look at this, you know, listen to this. Yeah. Especially what we'll get to at the very end of the lyrics when, uh, they've, the train's got its brakes on and the whistle is screaming Terrapin. It's like, okay, we're here. It's going to be revealed now, whether that's a good thing or a scary thing. Yeah. So then third stanza shadows of a sailor forming winds, both foul and fair all swarm down in Carlisle. He loved a lady many years ago. So we have the first character beginning to appear in the flames and winds both foul and fair all swarm is a very interesting line. It's like some sort of battle between good and evil taking place beyond the scope of the naked eye. Well, and going along with the shadows, right? Like say the sailor's walking towards you. If you're looking at it from one way, you may see the shadow, but if you're looking at it, you know, from the other side, maybe you're not seeing the shadow and you're just seeing them which goes with that winds, both foul and fair, right? Like, I mean, typically you can't see the wind, mm-hmm. right. And you wouldn't be able to see them swarming. Um, but the way that this is depicted, it's like, we're not viewing the actual scenario. We're viewing it being retold through the fire. And because of that, there's drama being added to it. We can actually see the wind trying to swallow this character up. Mm, that's a good point. And then the last half of this seems to imply that he didn't end up with the lady for good by referring to it in the past tense. Like he loved a lady many years ago, whether they were parted by one or both of their deaths or some other happening kind of has a similar vibe to Peggio, the old uh, like traditional standard that the dead used to cover a lot or girl from the North country. Speaking of Dylan. Mm. Yeah, I definitely hear that, right? Like Dylan was great at doing that, like writing a love song that was so inherently past tense, right? Mm-hmm. Cause you think of so many love songs, it's I love you. It's uh, we love each other now. Right, or like, I'm gonna make you love me. Right, it's, it's either future or present. The past tense love song is uh, far less optimistic and more so like almost nostalgic, almost longing for the past. Although this doesn't, to me, strike me as like, oh, I wish we were back then when when he loved the woman. It's just kind of such an interesting tale. It's right, like it's people trying to woo this lady, right? And and the tale hearing, you know, who is going to win? Uh, we don't know. Do they end up together? Do they not? That's up to you, right? Mm-hmm. And as we'll see, it's so much of it's about the lengths you're willing to go to 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 win affection and whether or not you should and all that Mm -hmm. so then fourth stanza here beside him stands a man a soldier by the looks of him who came through many fights but lost at love i love how that one cuts off like you're you're waiting for a rhyme possibly on by the looks of him right but then it goes but lost at love and it seems short it seems like that line is cut off which goes so perfectly with lost at love Mm -hmm. So this one's one of the more self-explanatory chunks in the song, but now we're left to wonder why we have a sailor and a soldier standing beside each other and coming through many fights, but losing at love is something that lots of people can relate to. Absolutely. Right there, that makes it universal. Just everybody deals with love and loss 
and that alone, that line, it's like, you know, whether you're a sailor and you can actually relate or a soldier and you can actually relate or you're nothing even close, you can see yourself in one of their shoes. Yeah. And it could even mean not like a literal soldier, but somebody who just has a combative approach to their relationships. And so they came through many fights as in they always win the argument, but because of that, they lost their love. Right. One, a soldier by the looks of him, it's a very sneaky way of, is he a soldier or does he just look like a soldier? Like, is he in the army or does he just have a cool army jacket? Yeah. Okay. Then we have, while the storyteller speaks, a door within the fire creaks, suddenly flies open and a girl is standing there. This part really piques your interest and the rising action of the story starts to pick up steam. Right. And it's suddenly flies open and a girl is standing there to us. That's the introduction of, of the girl. Did this like, did the sailor and the soldier know that she was there? Who knows, but you know that the story is picking up and, and you're thinking, okay, well, how's she getting out of the fire? Are, are they getting her out of the fire? What's going on here? Mm -hmm. And then we get a description of the girl eyes alight with glowing hair all that fancy paints as fair. She takes her fan and throws it in the lion's den. I think all that fancy, all that fancy paints as fair is a great concise, like poetic way of summarizing a woman's beauty. But we also notice that all the descriptions of her are kind of superficial and focused on the, the outer. We, we don't get any indication that, that she has, redeeming inner qualities doesn't mean she doesn't but hunter would often throw those in in songs where he thought that was important like sugar magnolia talks about her personality traits and even scarlet begonias if they're more superficial it's like oh she's into the blues and stuff like that right which are things that by extension you go ah oh, she's into the blues what what does that say about her whereas you go it, she's she's fair she's beautiful it you don't take it a step further you don't know anything about her yet yeah it's just like walking past a a billboard ad of a supermodel you're like oh my god but you, you don't know the first thing about her right and then as far as throwing her fan in the lion's den if the fan is special then why would she throw it in a lion's den but if it's not special, why should they, or we as the listener, care that it's now in the lion's den? Right. Does the fan represent something? Like, what What really is going on here? Because I can tell you, I wouldn't be going into a lion's den for a fan. And no. if I'm willing to toss it into a lion's den, then I'm sure I don't need it. Right. And then we find out why, though, in the next one which of you to gain me tell will risk uncertain pains of hell. I will not forgive you if you will not take the chance. So she's very aware of how in demand she is and just throws it in there as a test to see which of them is willing to like risk death to win her over. Which it's, it's such a, a barbaric depiction yeah, it's like a jousting match in the medieval ages where knights would have to like duel it out to win the maiden. Right. It's like, you want me? Show me. Toss is like 
meat into the lion's cage. It's like, if it eats it before you get there, I'm gone. Uh, so she seems like a tough woman to please won't forgive them or consider them if they won't jump in, jump in a lion's den for her. You know, it's, it just keeps me long. I'm like, what's next? What's next? Like I, right. Like thinking, right. You're thinking whose shoes am I in? Like, you know, would I go into that lion's den? I don't know. The only thing I know about her is that she's pretty. She just came out of a fire. Like, is that enough for you? Yeah. And then the sailor gave at least a try. The soldier being much too wise, strategy was his strength and not disaster. So the sailor throws caution to the wind or to the winds, both foul and fair, and gives it a go. But the soldier is too cautious and calculating to risk it for the biscuits. It right and and then right away this is splitting the story in in two directions. You're you're gonna have people thinking, am I am I the sailor or am I the soldier or am I neither? Mm-hmm. And then the sailor coming out again. The lady fairly leapt at him. That's how it stands today. You decide if he was wise. So the sailor survives his rescue mission of the fan and is duly rewarded by winning the lady's love. And the soldier is forced to watch and live with the potential regret of having not taken the chance. But the storyteller indicates that he isn't convinced uh, it was the wise move despite the success and invites us to decide for ourselves. It could be he's suggesting that one who would ask you to do something so reckless to win them over isn't someone you truly want to win over and will likely be a handful. Maybe this is why the sailor loved her many years ago, which makes it all the more interesting that it says that's how it stands today. You know, maybe he's still with her, but it's been a long time since he loved her because once he got her, he realized she was kind of a Trojan horse. Well, and it makes me question the use of the word loved. So, you know, something so fickle of go get my fan for me. Um, if you want to win me, it's making me question, are we talking like physical love or like an actual loving relationship? Because to me, after that, it's easily, he could have loved her many years ago and it was just a little fling and he, you know, went back to sailing. Mm -hmm. The storyteller makes no choice. Soon you will not hear his voice. His job is to shed light and not to master. So the listeners want the teller to, tell them what to think and to make sense of it all for them, but he won't do it. And in fact, he's going to disappear soon. And he sees his role as provoking others to think about difficult, complex, like mystical philosophical things for themselves. When I love how this is like, it's foreshadowing. It's like, you're about to lose your, your narrator here. Mm-hmm. As we're, as we're getting close to the actual Terrapin station part and moving away from the lady. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of uh, moonlight drive by the doors actually, when it says you reach your hand to hold me, but I can't be your guide. Right. And it's like, you've come this far with your guide and it's literally telling you you're losing the guide. You got to make up your own mind on this one. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and maybe that's uh, it's to say that there isn't a right choice. Like neither the sailor nor the soldier is wise or a fool. You got to handle that situation in the way that seems fit for you. Exactly. Right. And, and what might be foolish to one person is completely justifiable to somebody else. And right. Somebody else is going to say, I, I want to have to, to win that love. Somebody else is going to go, come on, I'm a fool. I'll just go to the next fire. <laughs> yeah. And then the, the final stanza of the lady with a fan section since the end is, and this is when it starts to transition towards Terrapin with the, uh, like the music underneath changes and feels a bit more like suspended in midair. Since the end is never told, we pay the teller off in gold in hopes he will come back, but he cannot be bought or sold. So the listeners seem to have missed the point totally and try in vain to bribe the narrator to tell them the rest of the story, but he slips away, leaving them with many questions and no answers. Well, it's kind of making me think like, right, like at the beginning, the let my inspiration flow and, you know, let this tale be told. You're thinking, you know, there's there's these people around the fire begging this this elder to tell them the story. And however we want to say he leaves, whether he actually gets up and, you know, says I'm calling it a night or he he's told the story that he saved for so long and that was the meaning of his life. And now he's gone. He He's passed away. And now it's everybody else around the fire going, what did that all mean? Um, and, and right moving into that next section, it's rather than dwelling on what did it mean, it, it, it gives you something completely different and continues the, this little game where it's like, you have to make up your own mind what this means. Okay, so now into the Terrapin Station section. Inspiration, move me brightly light the song with sense and color hold away despair more than this i will not ask faced with mysteries dark and vast statements just seem vain at last some rise some fall some climb to get to terrapin so this now appears to be from the perspective of those who were sitting around the fire it's like the at least one of them has resolved to find Terrapin to figure out how it ended for himself and with the faced with mysteries dark and vast so he's trying to figure out what this this old guy told him around the fire but it's also interesting because in the lady with a fan section it says down in Carlisle he loved a lady many years ago and now we're headed to Terrapin so is like Carlisle a town within Terrapin or did is there a part of the story that wasn't recounted in the lady with a fan section where the, the person, the old fellow around the fire said, you know, explained more of the, the locations and timing and all of that. Well, I love the sunrise, some fall, some climb to get to Terrapin because it's either it's a, it's an actual place where from one side, you've got to go up to get to it. And one side you got to go down or it's not a real place. And it's describing that, you know, some need to, to learn more to, to reach 
this so-called terrapin and some people need to dumb themselves down to get into the story and, and, and get in the setting of what it is. It's making me question is terrapin a real place or is, or is it just kind of fictional? It's more so a, a, an ideology. Yeah. Is it like restoring your, your childlike sense of wonder and creativity or is it enlightenment or it could mean it's such a desirable place that it doesn't, whether you're rising or falling or climbing people do whatever they need to to get there yeah and then the next one counting stars by candlelight all are dim but one is bright the spiral light of venus rising first and shining best from the northwest corner of a brand new crescent moon crickets and cicadas sing a rare and different tune so Venus was the Roman goddess of love, which makes sense uh, in light of the, the lady with the fan section with uh, a kind of goddess-like description of the lady and it being somewhat of a love story. Uh, but also interesting that like, if you imagine that the lady is Venus, then it's like they're using her as like their guiding star on the journey, trying to find out the end of the story. Well, and it makes me think like, right. Like Venus is the Roman goddess of love versus Aphrodite is the Greek. Mm -hmm. And I think Venus is a bit more violent of a, of a God than, than her Greek counterpart. And so it's an interesting choice because it could be Venus or it could be Aphrodite. He's choosing Venus, which is, which is going with this, like, you got to go through hell to win me over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great point. And then cicadas only come out once every 13 to 17 years, depending on the subspecies. So in that sense, anything that they sing is a rare tune. But also uh, Socrates wrote in the myth of the cicadas, he proposed the notion that cicadas used to be men who when music was discovered like way back thousands of years ago they sang nonstop because they just liked music so much and forsook the or forsake the necessities of life like food and water until they died because they just sang nonstop once music was discovered or invented and then were reincarnated as these insects who are able to sing ceaselessly from birth to death. So perhaps hunters implying that a terrapin is like the heaven of the cicadas or something. Or it's even just like a heavenly place where there's always music, always somebody singing. There's always more than one song going on here. Mm -hmm. uh, and then terrapin station in the shadow of the moon, terrapin station. And I know we'll be there soon. So the shadow of the moon could refer to a solar eclipse during the totality stage when the sun is completely blocked out by the moon. Stars and planets that are usually hidden can become visible. Well, and that, like, again, back to the choice of Venus, right? With, with the duality of Venus being a planet, maybe you're seeing venus because there's an eclipse and typically you can't see it but but on this night you can um well and i i love that 
as the stories go on, like he doesn't have um, an established rhyme scheme or at least not one that's like super concrete. Like it's not A, B, A, B, you know, some verses it's like A, A, C, B, mm-hmm. um, whatever, or A, A, B, C, I guess in that, in that case. But as it's moving along and now we've lost the narrator, we're getting a bit more rhyme here, right? Like the last stanza from the Northwest corner of a brand new crescent moon, crickets and cicadas sing a rare and different tune terrapin station in the shadow of the moon terrapin station and i know we'll be there soon you're getting now we've got four rhymes on that same sound and it feels like we're moving somewhere it's it's giving you it's it's keeping you uh engaged because now there's a bit more rhyme to it you're able to follow it a bit more yeah and that's an interesting point with uh you know if the spiral light of venus is the uh, the one that's bright that they're using as their their guidepost to find the way to Terrapin. If it's only visible during the totality of a solar eclipse, it's like the chance to make this journey doesn't come around very often. So you have to seize the moment. Well, and with the that idea where normally you can't see it, but today you can it's giving you that sense of, oh, this is our chance, right? And with the rhymes picking up and being a bit more repetitive here, it's almost like the stars have aligned. Yeah, it's like, okay, we got to go now. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that parallels with the the cicada imagery. You only, the chance to hear them doesn't come around every day or even every year. It's like a once every decade and a half type thing exactly and then the last little bit terrapin i can't figure out terrapin if it's an end or the beginning terrapin but the train's got its brakes on and the whistle is screaming terrapin so now it's like as he's getting closer it's almost like he's having second thoughts about traveling here it could be the start of something new and awesome or it could be the end of him if it turns out to be like a scary place, but it's too late now. The train's screeching to a halt and we're here. And then the lyrics just drop away. It's like, oh my gosh, what happened? Right. And there's zero resolution and it's up to you if Terrapin is a haven or if it's or if it's a hell and it's the end. Yeah. So those are the lyrics. As far as live performances of Terrapin Station, it debuted, as we said, February 26th, 1977 at Swing Auditorium in San Bernardino, California. It was played 301 times, which ranks 44th in their catalog. My favorite version of it uh, is the May 17th, 77 version at Memorial Coliseum in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, which is uh, why we chose it as the the reference version for today and it's the lucky number 13th time they played it so how about that uh it's such a fantastic version the, the tuscaloosa version and it's you know it's it's going with that same the stars have aligned thing it, it sounds like the perfect version of the song to me and it's such a great reference right like you know if you want this to be the final version n- nobody's going to stop you because it's you know, it's definitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do think it was, uh, it was one of their best live songs. Uh, 
which is impressive as we see given the complexity and the number of lyrics to remember but it always came off really well and added to any set list that it was in funny that it should peak so at least in our opinion so early in its uh in its live history you know version number 13 out of 301 and part of that is uh jerry's vocals still being as good as they are on the studio version and by the time they're playing it in the 80s and 90s he was a bit more tattered but but so consistent with the music always being so good and thinking about 300 different versions of this song um and you know whether it's the first one you play or the last one you play that's the best you know it's just about finding which one's your favorite and uh you know i i think it also speaks to to how well they they performed the song that you know it didn't take them 50 or 100 times of playing it to really get it down like you've you've played it a dozen times and you've already gotten it to the point where people are saying you know this is the the best version this is the ultimate yeah for sure i mean on headyversion.com which you've heard me mention on a few of our episodes where they rank the different versions uh they actually have the the very first one the feb 26th rank first i disagree with that it's like not bad by any means but i think it it got better uh at least through the spring of 77 but yeah they uh they nailed it right out of the gate and it it always it kind of has some songs just have that special vibe where when they play it in a in a set it's like it takes up the uh, the sense of spectacle of the show, and you think, like, "Oh, we, we're getting a really special night tonight." And this Absolutely, oh, not quite to Dark Star level of it, but it's definitely a song that you want to get thrown in there. That you know, when they play a great version of it, you're like, "We know this show is is going to be perfect." Mm-hmm. So that kind of leads into general observations about the song. Uh, the dead are experts at songs that take you on a journey and Terrapin is one of the best in that regard. You'll never beat dark star on that front, but Terrapin does a good job of uh, taking you on a journey in its own way. And it's more structured and focused than most of their journey songs with kind of defined sections and characters and a, a defined destination. When it's right. Like dark star is, is such a favorite for you. Um, whereas, right, like we're talking about how this one's a bit more defined, like it, it's a bit more up my alley where I don't feel like there's stuff that's been added to extend the song for improvisation sake or, or to give you that feeling that you're in outer space or anything. It's the lyrics that really ultimately drive the song and make you feel like you're going to Terrapin. Mm-hmm. And along those lines, I've mentioned before how, the dead have several songs that I find to be very reliable for drifting away and getting into my introverted intuition, uh, as far as uh, cognitive functions in the the personality type world and Terrapin's one of the best for that. But it's interesting in that the exploration it allows you as a listener is tied much more to making what you will of the lyrics since the music stayed more or less the same across all versions of it uh certainly by dead standards compared to something like dark star well i think like that's so interesting too because right dark star dark star being being about like outer space 
and, and kind of drifting off into this, this Neverland where you don't know really where it is. This makes Terrapin because it's driven by lyrics. It makes me feel a bit more like it's a, a real tangible place that you could actually visit. Um, and right. The muse, the music is creating this backdrop and because they're, they're always playing it um, pretty similarly to me, it's almost like the music is Terrapin and the lyrics are the story they're telling about it. Whereas with Dark Star, the music is the story. Mm-hmm. More so than this. A lot more so, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And now as far as placing it within their catalog, when I ranked my top 100 dead songs back in the spring, summer, uh, the list would be different now than it was then even. But I had Terrapin 5th behind dark star uncle john's band sugar magnolia and scarlet begonias and really besides dark star being my forever number one those four were all really close uh between uncle john's and terrapin and then like i rippled right behind that and then the rest of the top 10 i think was turn on your love light and good loving like neck and neck and broke down palace and addicts of my life neck and neck uh which is nine i forget what was 10 but anyhow where would you place it in uh kind of your personal ranking of the dead's catalog uh, i would i'd say top 10 for sure um friend of the devil is one that you didn't mention that's a big one for me i love that song so much um and then all those American beauty numbers you named are, are going to be in my top 10. Uh, Dark star is probably not as high up for me as it is for you, but I do understand the beauty of it. And, you know, I can appreciate a great version of dark star. Um, I, th- I think dark star would land in my top 10, but I, I, I definitely think I have this one higher. Like this is maybe even top five. Yeah. Well, we agree on that at least. <laughs> There's one thing. Eh? <laughs> uh do you have anything else you uh any other thoughts about it just or even tangentially related anything you want to add before we wrap it up um no i like only that uh you know i i think it's it's cool that they have a lot of songs that they add to the studio version when they play it live and and i think this is the first one i've heard where they're taking something away from the studio version and playing it live. And I just think it speaks to how, how um, in tune they were with, with the kind of band they were and the connection they had with their audience that, you know, they, they were capable of swallowing their pride and cutting a complete section from something that they, they spent time in the studio working on because they thought this works better this way. Um, And I, I think it's just, that speaks to how truly great an artist they they were and are and their music will continue to be um because it, it's just going to show that nothing is final and, and you know if it works better we're going to cut a section if it works better we're going to add one for sure yeah the ability to honestly self-assess and edit and censor yourself is a a huge skill and asset not just as a musician but in life you know, it, it might it might be the most important thing as a musician, as an artist, as a writer. You know, it's 
when you start writing anything you write, you're kind of like, ah, that's the coolest thing I've ever written. And then as you write more, it, it becomes so much more specific. And it's, it's like, it's, it's good. It's not the best I've done, but it's good. I'll keep it. It's a good song. And then even going further than that, where you write a song, you're like, it's great, but you can't just tell yourself it's all great. What if you go, you know, the bridge isn't really strong enough. You change it up. Even, even after you've recorded it on a studio version, you're like, no, I'm going to play it different. Maybe, maybe you have a song end on a fade out on the studio version and you go to play it live. Right. And you can't replicate a fade out. So you've got to write a proper ending to it. You know, it's, it's that kind of self-reflection that, it separates great artists from, from good artists. And it's, it's such a thing like that's typically what a producer does in the studio. Right. And you think of the dead as, as such a live band, right. You're not going to have a producer with you on stage saying, you know, eh, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, and it's that self-reflection that I think has made their music stand up over the test of time. So, well, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like, uh, with Zeppelin in 69, there was a brief period where Bonham tried using two bass drums because, uh, you know, you think, well, if I'm this amazing with just my right foot, imagine how powerful we'd sound if I had two. And then they tried it for a couple of shows and the other guys were like, yeah, it's actually too much. Like you're plenty with just one. And right. Well, and like, you know, I'm thinking of, uh, like maybe I'm amazed by Paul McCartney, the original studio version fades out. Whereas when he's played it live ever since then, it, it has a beautiful ending that, that he wrote to give uh, the song a, a bigger sense of finality. Um, and it's, you know, there's, there's people's catalogs that will be littered with, with things like that, where it's, you know, making a small change. Um, and on top of that, that the dead were constantly weaving songs together, which is such a hard thing to do. Um, and, and especially considering like this song where you've got, it's basically two songs in one Mm -hmm. you're switching from one key to the next, the timing all over the place. And then you're going to take that into a a completely new song. That's probably in a new unvisited key. Um, It's just brilliant. I I love hearing it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the transitions into different time signatures always get me, especially um, in 69 with the, uh, well, when they would go in and out of, playing in the band that's switching in and out of 10-4 which uh brings some challenge but it's like 4-4 with an extension so it's it's easy enough but then um when they would go in and out of the 11 in the earlier years which is in 11-8 going into it always feels easier coming out of St. Stephen because you just like slowly add that or or drop that last eighth note or whatever but but uh, then going out of the 11 back into like 4-4 four, four or something and making it sound smooth, it's like, wait, what am I doing? You're like, okay, I'm going to do it next time around. And then you're like, wait, no, I'm not ready. <laughs> yeah, no, that's it's so tricky. I mean, switching between chords is hard, but as long as you know the, the device to do it, you can make anything happen. Switching between tempos, right? I mean, the pulse of a song is inherently what everybody feels, whether you've never heard music before or not, you feel one, two, three, four, or you feel one, two, three, one, two, three. As soon as you start blurring that, 
you're making it harder for everybody to stay together. So unless you're doing it smoothly, it's more so a distraction, but the dead are a band that they never do that. It doesn't sound like a distraction. It sounds perfectly right for the song. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, I think this was a great uh, deep dive into Terrapin Station and I really enjoyed this type of process, getting to put a single song under the microscope and uh, having a chance to not leave any stones unturned. And uh, I think we should do this again for some other classics. I'd love to come back. I've got a, a list of songs going off in my head to do them. Okay, well, write it down because we won't be able to get into it until July probably since I have so many weeks in a row planned. But yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get to it. See you in July for it. Okay, well, and I'll see you in two weeks for the uh, the Allman Brothers Fillmore East 50th anniversary. Awesome. All right. See you soon, Spence. See you, man. Thank you. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed Spencer and I's deep dive into Terrapin Station by the Grateful Dead. As I have mentioned for some time now, I am now selling Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper t-shirts for $40 Canadian or two for 70 and I also found a way to make hoodies, uh, which are currently a limited edition of three, but I could be persuaded to make more if any of you are interested. So uh, if you're interested in a shirt or a hoodie, please feel free to reach out to me via email, rocktalk.dr.cropper at gmail.com, or on Instagram at rocktalk.dr.cropper or on Facebook or LinkedIn, Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. And I would be delighted to facilitate you getting some merchandise so that you can spread the word about the show. And even if you aren't interested in merchandise at this time, uh, please feel free to follow the show at any and all of those uh, platforms so that you can be kept abreast of the latest news pertaining to the show. Also, if you feel so inclined to leave a rating and review with the streaming platform that you use, those are very helpful for me. So thank you all so much for listening. If you're new to the show, welcome. I hope you enjoy it. And if you've been with us for a while, then uh, thanks for sticking along for the ride. And I hope you're still having fun. Next week, I'm going to be discussing the songs that most make me think of springtime. I haven't decided how many will be on the list yet, but I think that will be a good one for the first episode of March, my birthday month, which uh, is always a, an optimistic month for me, not just because my birthday is at the end, but uh, when I was younger, it would mean usually a, a ski trip of some sort on March break and just the weather getting nicer, and I always listen to the better shows of Led Zeppelin's 1975 tour uh, on their anniversaries during March, and I always just really like that time of year, so I look forward to sharing with you some of the songs that I most strongly associate with that time of year, with the, the coming of spring. Okay, so take care in the meantime, have a great weekend, and I will see you next week. Class dismissed.